Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are, and welcome to the Politics Guys with your hosts, Dave Carson and Michael Baranowski. Welcome to the Politics Guys. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. My guest today is James Fowles, a legendary figure in American journalism and someone I've been a huge fan of for many years. He was, as a very young man, chief speechwriter for President Jimmy Carter. He spent two years as editor of U.S. News and World Report, had a stint as a program director, designer, sorry, at Microsoft, and is currently a national correspondent for The Atlantic, a magazine he's written for since the late 1970s. His work there has won great acclaim, including a National Magazine Award. In addition to his journalism, Mr. Fowles is the founding chairman of New America, a think tank committed to renewing American politics, prosperity, and purpose, and the author of numerous books on subjects as diverse as the news media, travel, America's war in Iraq, and most recently, two books on China, Postcards from Tomorrow and China Airborne. And somehow, in his copious free time, he managed to become an instrument-rated pilot. James Fowles, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, and thanks for your very gracious introduction. Certainly. You know, I was hoping we could start with China, which I know is a major interest of yours. Back in the 1980s, it seemed like the main Asian threat that Americans were focusing on was Japan. But today, it's clearly China. And, you know, if you look at a graph of economic growth over, say, the last 50 years, China is basically going nowhere until the 1990s. And then that growth curve shoots up amazingly starting in the mid-2000s. And then, I mean, far more explosive growth than we've seen in the United States over that period. So what happened there? I think that the crucial turning point was actually in the late 70s, early 1980s, when after you know, decades of very tight control under uh, under Chairman Mao, uh, the reformer Deng Xiaoping came in and essentially said that if China were ever to become more prosperous, it had to have a more flexible market-oriented system. And so starting under Jimmy Carter, you know, I actually was working for Jimmy Carter when he had the normalization with Deng Xiaoping, and then through the 80s and 90s, um, the, the, the energies of China's billion-plus people were unleashed in various ways uh, under Deng Xiaoping. I think it's important for Americans simultaneously to recognize what China has done and how far it's come, but also to recognize how far it has to go. I mean, it still is on average quite a poor country. If your listeners have been to Shanghai or Beijing or Hong Kong, they've seen very modern airports and subways and skyscrapers and all the rest. But still, there are hundreds of millions of people in the Chinese interior who are essentially still peasants or living on very modest income. So China has done a it's accomplished a kind of economic miracle in the last generation and bringing lots of people out of rural poverty but it still has a lot of people to go. Its its per capita income is probably one-sixth that of the United States. Its pollution problems are formidable. So it's done a lot, 
and it has a lot still to do. You know, I wanted to ask you about pollution and some other things. I was wondering, do you think that China can sustain the sort of growth rate that it's that it's been on? I mean, are there any sort of uh, political, cultural, environmental, other barriers you see it bumping up against now or in the near-term future? The book I did a couple of years ago about China called China Airborne, one of its arguments was that the past 30 years of for of China's growth, you know, miraculous and impressive as they were, were actually going to be seen historically as relatively easy compared to the next 30 years. Now, what I meant by that is that China went in the past 30 years from being essentially a peasant country to being a low-wage industrial country, sort of the the uh, like the England of Charles Dickens, or like the America of the uh, Upton Sinclair jungle era, where it was it had a lot of it became the world's um, low-wage manufacturing center. What it wants to do in the next thirty years is to become sort of the next Japan or Germany or South Korea or even the United States, and that is harder in a lot of ways. It means um, having. Uh, universities that are really advanced as China's aren't. And it means doing things in a more sustainable way. And as you mentioned, uh, the pollution uh, factor there, I think, is is the most um, imposing challenge they have. For many of your listeners, I'm sure, have been either in big city China or in the provinces where it's like it's like England of the 1840s with their pea soup fogs or like Southern California of my childhood in the 50s and 60s with the smog except on a much larger and more disastrous scale. So I think environmental sustainability is problem number one for China, as China's own leaders uh, state. Um, political sustainability and transition is also an important thing. It's it's becoming now an outlier in a, as, as a country that doesn't elect its own leaders. And so I, I think it's a tricky passage ahead for China. And it, it's, it's over the years I've written about the challenge for Americans in managed managing to take foreign countries seriously without being scared of them. And I think the United States doesn't need to be scared of China, but it's important to take seriously what it's doing because China's success or failure in this transition is going to have a big effect on everybody environmentally, economically, politically, and in every other way. Right. So do you think that there's anything the United States can learn from Chinese economic growth? I mean, are they doing anything in your view that the United States could borrow, adopt, or are they simply just too different from us in so many ways that there aren't really any lessons that we can learn from Chinese growth? You know, it's an intriguing question you, you ask because in a way, the most important aspects of China's growth over the last um, generation have been things they sort of learned from the United States, and we have kind of forgotten ourselves. For example, the value of public investment in infrastructure, and and China does that to a fault. You know, whenever there's some uh, unemployment threat in China, they build a new airport or they build new a new high speed rail uh, line or something like that. You know, to the extent that there is more of this infrastructure than there are people to use it in many parts of the country. But that, that's something that the United States in its growth periods also used. And and China has uh, one one of the the themes I've tried to uh, talk about for the U.S. over the decades has been the payoff of public investment in crucial technology areas, whether it's um, aviation technology, which the U.S. pioneered in the space program and the Air Force and now leads to GPS and everything else, or whether it's biotech or whether it's simply university uh, investment. 
that is a lesson the United States over the last century plus has uh, taught to the rest of the world, including China, <laughs> and it's sort of lost in, in much of our, our current discourse. But I think that, that, that China had the advantages of scale, of bringing a billion people into the world trading system, and it's been pouring money into these high-end investments with returns like those the U.S. had at similar stages in this development. So I, I hope the lesson from China would be to rediscover some of our own um, economic past. So, I mean, you said that we shouldn't necessarily fear China. Now, there's a common narrative, particularly on the right, that the reason for uh, America's economic doldrums lately is that the Chinese have essentially taken our jobs. I mean, President Trump and others have suggested that. Do you agree with that? Or do you think it's too simplistic or missing something, perhaps? I think it's it's simultaneously somewhat true, too simplistic, and and sort of out of date. And what I mean is that if you look at the the time, well, let's skip ahead to the, to the last ten years. If you look at China in the last ten years, it has one surprising commonality with the U.S. of the last ten years, and Germany, and South Korea, and basically every place which is that every single economy around the world, including China's, has been having, has been fearing job loss in heavy industries and extractive industries like coal especially, but also other kinds of mining and steel making and all the rest. And, and the reason is in recent times, the real pressure on manufacturing and mining employment has been technology. It hasn't so much been trade as it has been, been technology. And, and to come, I'll come back to that in a second. Over the past 30 years, I think you can argue that in the 1990s especially, a lot of the pressure on U.S. manufacturing of, uh, of sort of medium tech goods from steel to other kinds of simple manufacturers, that was driven by bringing China into the world trading system. I think over the last 10 years, the pressure on jobs has been more from simply automation than it has been from China or Japan or Korea because those countries, too, are feeling the same kind of, of pressure. And you're seeing at a lot of high-end manufacturing goods where the labor costs are a smaller part of the component. There is this so-called reshoring phenomenon where the companies are coming back closer to the markets in California, in the industrial Midwest, in the American South. So, uh, yes, China is part of the pressure on American manufacturing. But I think concentrating on them as the main job loss factor now is sort of it's it's 20 years too late and it's missing what is the real issue now for the United States and place else, which is the, the, the challenge of automation and how to adapt to that. Right. Because with with a lot of that reshoring, the the manufacturing may be coming back, but the jobs aren't really coming back with that. Correct. In many cases. Uh, uh, it, it, exactly. And if you go to some of the. You know, big uh, car. So I've spent a lot of time recently in in the in the South, in Mississippi and Alabama and South Carolina, where there's a lot of in Tennessee, where there's a lot of of auto manufacturers who've come there, in, in Kentucky as well. And so the you know Toyota and Nissan and others and some American manufacturers have brought these brought these factories back to the U.S., but they simply are employing fewer people per car or truck than was the case um, a generation ago. I, I went to one of the world's most modern steel mills in northern Mississippi, which was uh, owned, started by the Russians, now owned by an American firm in, in Columbus, Mississippi. And it is putting out just a, just a gigantic amount of steel per hour around the clock. 
but with only a handful of people doing it. And the people in Mississippi who are doing that, it's good jobs. They're high-wage jobs, but there aren't that many of them. And so I think that is the next challenge that China and the U.S. and everybody else is dealing with at the same time. Right. Now, now I've heard that the Chinese are really good at adapting and mass producing the things that other folks innovate, but that they really aren't able to create and innovate in the way that, you know, a free and diverse society like the United States can. Uh, you've spent a lot of time in China. Is that is that your observation or is that is that kind of uh, outdated or just flat out wrong? So I think as a as a comparison of systems, you can say that between China and the United States. And I'd be very careful to distinguish between that and a comparison of people, because I think there is no more inventive accumulation of people on Earth than the billion plus people in China and the hundreds of millions of Chinese expats who are around the world. And you just marvel every day in China at the creative ways in which people deal with the challenges they face. But the Chinese system has had a number of impediments that have made it harder for um, companies there to to innovate in the long stand in the sort of sustainable ways that Western companies have. And I'll, I'll just give two illustrations. One involve, uh, involves universities, where, as everybody in the U.S. knows, where you have a big university, you often have spin-off companies all around it because professors or graduate students they have some idea for new batteries or new alloys or new biotech or what have you. And they're able to make co uh, companies from that. China, for purely political reasons, does not yet have great universities. You know, it has some some formidable ones like Tsinghua and Beijing and Fudan and Shanghai, but most of them are not world competitive because they're politically controlled. And uh, if they're trying to attract the world's best researchers from Germany or Japan or Massachusetts, they don't want to go to a place where the press is censored and where, where the, the pollution is so bad. So the universities are hamstrung. Also, the intellectual property laws are much laxer in China. And so I've had, I've had one conversation of the following kind. I've had a hundred, which is some Chinese entrepreneur who grew up in Shanghai or Hubei or wherever has a great idea for a new product, but he or she says, I'm going to go to California and set up my company in Menlo Park or in Palo Alto because there I can have intellectual property protections. If I do it in Shanghai, there's going to be five competitors who just steal it in the next month. So I think for because of political controls and intellectual property laws, it's harder for the inventiveness of Chinese people to be realized within their system. So do you think, moving on from the economic sphere, do you see China as a security threat? I mean, they, they seem to be making some pretty aggressive moves in the South China Sea. They're doing a big military buildup. And of course, there are some people who are saying this is a sign that they're going to try to push the United States out of Asia, where, of course, we've kind of guaranteed security in that region since really since World War II. I think it's a challenge for the rest of the countries in that region and for, for the U.S. too. And I, I say challenge rather than, than threat in this sense. I think it's not a threat immediately in that, number one, the Chinese military is very well aware of the enormous power disproportion between the U.S. and, and the Chinese military. So, you know, the United States military is incomparably stronger and better equipped and more modern than the China's military is. And they're, they're not looking for a fight with the U.S. in any kind of frontal way. Uh, number two, I think that, that 
Uh, it's not in China's interest to get into a real military confrontation uh, with the U.S. for strategic reasons in addition to these military ones. They, they very clearly would like to be able to threaten and take over Taiwan if it came to that. They, they have grievances against Japan in particular. And, and so it's, it's not a threat, but it's a challenge because I think this is a moment of instability within China and around China. I had a long article in the Atlantic a couple months ago saying that, that, uh, that China is tightening up internally in a way it hadn't done for 20 or 30 years. And it's also sort of putting its elbows out in its region in a way it hadn't done before. I think it's important for the U.S. and Japan and South Korea and Taiwan and all the other countries there to sort of find a way to maintain the balance and have the Chinese understand the U.S. is not going to attack them. It's not going to take away uh, their territory. But also China um, needs to be careful about the way it is extending some of its um, its interests and, and, and you know having these new bases or whatever. So I hope that the current U.S. administration is able to have some kind of consistent and sane and balanced expression of of in a non-disruptive way reasserting American interest in stability in that, that part of the world. Because uh, Xi Jinping, the current leader, part of his crackdown internally is matched with his aggressiveness externally. And that can be disruptive in ways that could cause problems, even though not an outright threat to the U.S. Right. Now, you mentioned the environment a little earlier, and, and I seem to recall uh, a while back, actually, some pictures that you yourself might have actually posted outside of your hotel room window. And, and just seeing the scene, it just it seemed almost unworldly to me, the, the level of pollution. And so I was wondering, do you think that the Chinese government is truly committed to the, the Paris Agreement on climate change? And, and kind of along those lines, with President Trump abandoning the U.S.'s uh, position in that, do you think that China, which is the world's largest polluter, polluter is likely to pull out too? I think the Chinese, both for their own reasons and for, for external reasons, are likely to, to be more committed to the Paris Agreement than the U.S. seems to be now and to other other initiatives too, for their own reasons. Um, I've argued, and I think people in the Chinese government believe that the main threat to their stability and ability to, to hold on to power for the next generation is environmental. You know, if you have villages where there are epidemics of cancer, if you have people whose children are getting, you know, the epidemics of birth defects, if, as is the case, the average life expectancy in Beijing is about five years shorter than it should be just because of air pollution. You know, these have political ramifications. And I think the Eastern Europeans in the last days of the Cold War in Romania and the old Soviet Union, East Germany, this kind of environmental poisoning was a real political issue. And I think the government in China is really, they recognize this as a threat to them that they need to deal with um, externally. The, the climate, you know, I'm talking about pollution, the climate issues, which are related, but, but different. I think that the Chinese recognize that this is a, a place where it would be good for them to move their own industries up the technology uh, curve towards cleaner, cleaner production. And also it's a way they can be uh, the good guys internationally. You know, all the rest of the world at the moment can say, well, the Chinese are, are, are having the standard bear here. So I think that China has already shown that it would like to sort of show the U.S. up 
in this regard. And this is a, an area of potential vulnerability for the U.S., I think. Definitely. I want to switch gears here a little bit. You, you wrote an award-winning piece on the U.S. invasion of Iraq, and it's been a little over 14 years since that invasion. And so I'm wondering, with, with the passage of time, how good or bad of a decision do you think that was? And has your view of this sort of changed over the years? My argument before the war in this piece you mentioned was called the 51st state was that that the decision to go into Iraq would have decades long consequences for the United States. And I argue those consequences would be bad rather than good. And I think that has proven uh, to, to be the case. You know, the United States probably has spent trillions of dollars now uh, differentially that, that it wouldn't have had to spend because of the decision to evade Iraq, invade Iraq. It's had, of course, many thousands of its own casualties and tens or hundreds of thousands of other people casualties. And it just is, there are all the political ramifications internally and internationally with our prison system and Guantanamo and, and, and all the rest. So I think if that decision could have been undone at the time, I think we would be vastly, vastly better off. And I think that the the asserted benefits we would have gotten by democratizing Iraq and the rest of the world have not proven to have not proven out. So there are some people who say, yes, it was the right choice then, the right choice now. But I don't think many people are making that, that case anymore. Yeah. You know, in fact, there are some people who are even suggesting that, that it could possibly be the worst foreign policy decision the United States has ever made. I, I don't know if that's going a bit far, but I, I, I've seen a reasonable case made along those lines. And, and I, I think I, I'm among those <laughs> who have made that case. And I think, you know, the closest competitor would, would be the Vietnam War, right. where in, in sheer cas sheer U.S. casualty terms, there's no comparison. Something like 50,000 Americans were killed in Vietnam, you know, which is an order of magnitude more than the than the American casualties in, in Iraq. But I, but Vietnam, in a way, was a more defensible decision, even though you know much bloodier for the U.S. because sort of month by month, it was a series of responses to provocations or decisions that seemed reasonable at the time. Uh, you could say, well, we've gone this far, we have to take the next step. Iraq, by contrast, was a wholly discretionary decision. There was no reason why the 9-11 attacks that were not from Iraq should necessarily have led to an invasion of Iraq. That, that was so, in terms of a free choice the U.S. had, I would argue this was the worst free choice the U.S. Uh, has ever made. Right. Yeah, uh, you, you've written a number of books, as I mentioned, on a number of topics, but your book, uh, Breaking the News, How the Media Undermined Democracy, it's a, a book that I loved when it came out. I've used it in a number of my classes back then. That came out about 20 years ago now. And so I'm wondering, why did you think the media was bad for democracy back then? And have subsequent events maybe changed or deepened your view on that? <laughs> Well, th thank you for remembering that and for assigning, as you say, it was 20 years ago the book came out, and that now looks like some lost Garden of Eden era yeah. in public life, where cable news was just getting going then, and th there was still there was still a recognized difference then between the worlds of entertainment and news. And part of what I was arguing was you had to maintain that distinction, because if you thought that news had to compete strictly head-to-head -head with entertainment, then 
by definition, sort of circus Roman spectacles would win because entertainment is always more entertaining. That's <laughs> that's what it's for. And news like education, like medicine, like law, like religion operates in some kind of separate realm. So I was trying to defend a distinction now that has been just entirely erased. <laughs> and I was saying that if, if news just was looking for ways to, to titillate in the long run, its its special value would be lost. Now we're in entirely different terrain, as you know, where technology has sort of peeled people off into different information spheres. And so I think that journalism now is more important than it has ever been before. It's under more serious economic challenge than, than it has ever been. And so I I think that that people in my business now of the news are having to reinvent ourselves. People in your business of education are trying to prepare the next generation of Americans for for understanding the world around them. And people in the technology world, I think, need to work both with education and journalism to sort of rebuild the fabric of of democratic information because democracy simply can't function if people don't know what's going on beyond their immediate experience. And so this is the shared um, task for all of us, to which your podcast is such an important contribution. Well, thank you. You know, it, it also seems like it's just a much more uh, pressured, frantic sort of environment. I remember back back in the day, I'm old enough to remember, where, you know, the Atlantic would come out once a month and, and I would get, you know, a daily paper and so forth. But now I just, I feel, I feel so almost oppressed by the news. And I think probably a lot of people feel that way. Journalists maybe more than anyone else. Uh, I think that is very much the case. And on the one hand, it's always been this way. You know, you can look back when TV was invented, there was that, that, um, fear when radio was invented a hundred years ago there was that problem when the printing press came into being you know that was uh, that was overtaking uh, the handwritten manuscript so on the one hand this is a familiar problem on the other hand the difference in scale makes it a whole different different thing and i think that that a positive development if there is any is that certain kinds of reactions are reasserting themselves. The Atlantic, for example, now has a bigger audience than it has ever had before in its history. It's economically more successful and it's been in a very long time. We feel as if there's a bigger market for serious journalism than there's been. The market for books keeps going up. The markets for long form broadcasts and podcasts is going up. So we have these contradictory tendencies of people being more distracted but also looking for ways to sort of dig in more. And all I can say is that, you know, Thomas Jefferson's old uh, invocations about the, the price of liberty being eternal vigilance, I mean, that is true in new ways now. I, I think that, 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 that journalists, students, citizens, teachers, parents, young people, old people, all need actively to re-engage in ways to to diminish the clutter and 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 read and engage more things that are of lasting insight, and that that's a sort of frustrating thing to say because there's no one answer. But I think it is the is the only answer of just everybody being engaged all out 
as as we all can. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, just a couple of quick uh, final questions for you, one political and one not. I'll start with the political question. Uh, I mentioned that you were a, you were a head speechwriter for President Carter. And, you know, I've actually heard some comparisons between President Trump and President Carter, people suggesting, well, you know, you have two outsider presidents who came in with majorities in Congress, but who really struggled to implement policy. And I'm wondering, do you see any any likeness is there between those two people? <laughs> I, I think you can compare the predicaments of, of uh, out, unlikely candidates coming in at troubled times. You know, Jimmy Carter became president almost entirely in reaction to, to the Watergate scandals and the desire for somebody who was a very different from that. I think you cannot compare the human beings whatsoever. No. <laughs> that, that Jimmy Carter is a, uh, he may be sort of the, the, on raw IQ scores, he could be one of the smartest people ever to hold the office. A very moral person. A, a you know, a, a even now in his 90s, he still teaches Sunday school every every week. He's more or less the opposite of Donald Trump in every yeah. single way you you could Im uh, imagine. Uh, so I understand the structural comparison. My back hairs rise up right. if, if yeah. there's any any likeness between Donald Trump and Jimmy Carter. But um, I understand the structural the structural match people might make. Yeah, definitely. And and finally, uh, a non political question. It's, it's a question I haven't been able to ask any guest before. But but you're special <laughs> in this sense because you've done you know your share of writing on computer technology, uh, especially on uh, apps and software that's useful for writers and other you know knowledge workers. And I've always loved those articles of yours. And so I'm dying to know, um, you know, what what sort of things are you using and recommending these days? Oh, thanks so much for asking that. The um, about 10 years ago, I made the switch from the, the PC world to the to the Mac world. And I'm happy to say that the program I love most of all is available both in Mac and uh, in PC formats. And that's a writing program called Scrivener like the old word for manuscript writers, Scrivener. It comes from a little software house called Literature and Latte on the west end side of, of England out in Cornwall. And it is the most brilliant software for long form writing. I use, I'm in the middle of writing a book right now and I use Scrivener. I've used it for my last now, I guess, four books. And it really is great. So your listeners go to literatureandlatte.com, look for Scrivener, it's both Mac and PC. There's a Mac-only um, ideas organizing program called Tinderbox that I uh, that I love. It's from a company called Eastgate outside Boston, So, but that, that is Mac-only. There's also a wonderful program called Scapple, S-C-A-P-P-L-E, from the same literature and latte firm. I I think it's it's dual platform Mac and PC, but it's a wonderful. It's the the computer equivalent of being able to write things out on, on a napkin, and it's sort of the best uh, uh, quick way to, to dash things off. So it's a uh, a golden age of this kind of uh, what's called artisanal software of of things which are not for really mainstream uh, audiences. But I I, I love uh, I love those those products, and I appreciate your asking. Well, I like I think I might have actually heard at first about the Scrivener from you, and I I started to use it, and I, I love it. I played around with Scrapple a little bit. Tinderbox is new to me, but I'm definitely going to have to check it out. So thank you so much. Yeah, uh, and with that, we will close. James Fells, thanks again for taking the time to talk with me today. Well, thanks for all of your, your excellent and serious questions, and it's an honor to be part of your series. So thanks and greetings to all your listeners. Thanks for listening to this Politics Guys interview. 
If you have any thoughts, questions, comments, or criticisms, we'd love to hear from you. Our email is mail at politicsguys.com. Our Facebook page, where we post throughout the week, is facebook.com slash politicsguys page. We're also on Twitter, at politicsguys. And we'd really appreciate it if you could subscribe to the show and leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever podcast service you use. Sharing and retweeting our new show posts and tweets also helps out a lot. And if you'd like to support the show financially, you can do that through the Patreon or PayPal links on our website. We'll be back with a new show next Wednesday. We hope you'll join us.